Number Three, Part Two of The Heart of a Mystery by L.T. Mead and Robert Eustace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Tiger's Claw, Part Two. So the days passed pleasantly enough, and at last the night of the fancy ball at Almeida Castle arrived. Pinheiro had helped me to design the fancy dress which I was to wear, and in which I prided myself my best friend would not recognize me. I had just finished dinner on this special evening when the waiter handed me a note from Signor Pinheiro. Please come round at once, I want to see you, it ran. In five minutes' time I was in his room. I found him standing by the open window, a letter in his hand. When he saw me, he turned round slowly and gave it to me to read without a remark. Not from Mademoiselle, I cried. He nodded, but did not speak. My hand began to tremble, and a sick sensation visited me. Read it, said Pinheiro, now showing some impatience. She has heard that I am at work, and the bluster and bounce show that she is afraid. These, as far as they go, are good signs. The letter was dated from the Hotel Bellevue, Taramina, Sicily, and the envelope bore the Sicilian postmark. Dear Senor Pinheiro, it ran, it was such a pleasure to meet you again at Castillo Almeida. I always lament that our interest should be so at variance, but it is entirely your own fault. Don't be silly now, or you will bitterly regret it. Remember that I know everything, and remember that I am still the same. Francesca. P.S. I have just arrived here. The climate is divine. Why don't you come? What has she gone to Sicily for? I could not help exclaiming as I folded the letter and returned it to my host. I suppose, because there is no extradition? She is not in Sicily and has never been there, was the signor's reply. I stared at Pinheiro. That is her writing and signature, I said, and the postmark is Sicilian, of the correct date. True, but I had reason to suspect the genuineness of that letter. I have just cabled to Bellevue at Taramina and she is not there. The letter was written and sent to a friend to post there. At present, I have no information as to her whereabouts. There is one feature in the letter which I do not like. Beyond doubt, it was sent with a purpose. What that purpose is, I don't quite know. As far as we are concerned, it means, doubtless, that we must be more on our guard than ever. He gave a little shudder. I tell you, Finesse, I don't like it. You mean that we are in some unknown danger? He shrugged his shoulders. Possibly? Nay, I should add probably. But whether or no, I mean to enjoy myself tonight. Go back and dress and come round here, and we will forget Mademoiselle in the mazes of the cotillion. Though I had expected some gay sights at the Castle Almeida, I was certainly not prepared for the magnificent display that awaited us on our arrival. The beautiful gardens and terraces were hung with festoons of Japanese lanterns, and were already astir with revelers in fantastic dresses and all masked. Upon the polished inlaid floor of the great ballroom, many couples were waltzing to the strains of a military band in the gallery. According to our English notions of society, a Portuguese masked ball would seem unaccountable and strange, for all introductions were dispensed with, and as the features of men and women alike were hidden under the mask, it was impossible to tell with whom one was dancing. But there was one lady, at any rate, 
whom I had no difficulty in recognizing, and that was the young Marquesa Ferraz. I had not been in the ballroom two minutes before I recognized her. She was dressed as Queen Margarita of Spain, with a large lace ruffle and the most magnificent black Spanish lace arranged round her slender form that I had ever seen. Upon her head she wore the curious Indian headdress, with its four tiger claws. The effect was marvelous. It gave a strange feline look to the head and face, though the latter was closely hidden by a black mask. I made my way across to her. "'You look magnificent in your beautiful headdress, Marquesa Ferraz,' I said. "'I only hope you will be merciful to your partners, for you are armed against any unfavorable advances.' "'Yes, I am armed, Monsieur Fenace,' she replied in so low a voice that, with the noise of the music, I could scarcely catch the words. She gave me a flashing glance with her lovely eyes, and again I could not help likening her to Mademoiselle Delacourt. "'Has Signor Pinero come with you tonight?' she asked. "'Yes, of course. There he is, close to us. Don't you see him? He is dressed as Vasco da Gama, to whom your family owes your headdress. But will you give me the pleasure of a dance, Marquesa? Later I shall be delighted.' Again she spoke in a whisper, and making me a low bow, she moved off among the throng. It crossed my mind, just at that moment, that there was something strange and a little unaccountable in her manner, but I had forgotten it the next minute in waltzing with an unknown but magnificent dancer. Several times during the evening I caught sight of the Marquesa waltzing with her many partners. There was a gay abandon about all her movements. Her dancing was the perfection of charming and exquisite movements, and I looked forward with pleasure to the moment when I should encircle her slim waist with my arm and conduct her through the mazes of the waltz. From time to time my other partners spoke of the Marquesa, and each and all, when they alluded to her, mentioned her headdress with a degree of envy. "'It is our great ambition,' said one slender girl, looking into my face as she spoke, and flashing at me a pair of magnificent Spanish eyes, it is our great ambition at our fancy balls to wear something outre, strange and unconventional. You can judge for yourself, monsieur, she said, speaking in excellent French, that such an ambition becomes more and more difficult to gratify as time goes on, all ideas being used up in advance. Now the Marquesa has exceeded herself tonight. She can be recognized anywhere. Hers is the most distinguished figure at the ball. I made some suitable reply, and as the hour was midnight, and the time had come when I might claim the fulfillment of the Portuguese girl's promise, I went to seek for her. I wandered into the gardens and was just passing a fountain which sent its cool spray full of rosy light up into the night air when I heard a light laugh almost in my ear. I turned quickly, but no one was visible, but the next moment the following words were distinctly audible. Doesn't she do it well? and the best of the fun is that everyone takes her for me. The voice was exactly like that of the Marquesa. What did she mean? I called her name, but receiving no answer, wandered down further into the grounds. It would not be difficult to find her on account of her characteristic and towering headdress. I had sauntered down one of the pathways towards the sea, when suddenly, by the light of a Chinese lantern, I caught sight of her, moving swiftly in an opposite direction along a parallel pathway which separated her from me by a low hedge of Lorestein. She was alone, and I stopped and called to her. Marquesa, I cried, 
I have come to claim your promise. She stopped abruptly and waited for me to go up to her. Monsieur Finet's, she said in courteous tones. Yes, I answered. I did not recognize you beneath your mask, was her next remark. You have the advantage of me, Marquesa, I answered. You are easily distinguishable owing to your headdress. Yes, she answered, and her voice was very low. I had noticed this peculiarity early in the evening, and now, bending towards her, I said, You will give me the promised dance? Yes, she replied, yes, with pleasure. But you are tired, I continued. You think so, because I speak low, was her reply. Sometimes I suffer from a curious affection of the throat, and at times am too indescribably tired to raise my voice. She stopped in the middle of her sentence and burst into a peal of ringing laughter. That laugh sounded almost offensive. I started away from her side, displeased. I knew not why. Come, she said, laying her hand, light as a feather, on my arm. I am sorry I laughed, but I am subject to uncontrollable mirth at the most inconvenient times. Let us return to the ballroom, where we will enjoy ourselves in the waltz. We re-entered the magnificent room side by side. A moment later we were whirling gaily through the waltz. Did I say gaily? That was the maddest time of my life. The blood coursed through my veins with the joyousness of youth. The shadow in which I dwelt sped away from me, and sunlight, gay and joyous, filled my soul. Was there ever such a dancer? She seemed to sweep me up and carry me forward with the gaiety of her movements. We paused, breathless. I have met no one who could dance like you, was my remark, when I could speak. Such music, such a floor, and such a partner, make the thing divine, was her answer. Shall we take another turn, monsieur? Again my arm encircled her waist, and again we whirled in the giddy round. The room was now much more crowded than it had been when we danced a few moments earlier. Couples had arrived in haste from the gardens. The music played an inspiriting waltz. The time of the band was so brisk as to be almost maddening. Lighter and quicker were our movements. Suddenly we found ourselves in a dense mass of people. Our way was blocked. The other end of the room is nearly empty, I whispered to my partner. Let us go there. We can dance without being disturbed. Yes, she replied, and to my astonishment she moved towards the doorway through which numerous dancers were pressing. The next instant we were jammed in the doorway. A burly man pushed rudely against us. The Marquesa uttered a cry and fell against my breast. One of the tiger claws scratched my neck very slightly. But the next moment we were dancing as briskly as ever. Why? suddenly cried the Marquesa. What is the matter with you, monsieur? Your neck is bleeding. I took a handkerchief and pressed it to the wound. You scratched it, I replied, with one of the claws of your formidable headdress. Did I not say that I was dangerous? she answered. There was a peculiar ring in her voice. It was no longer low and guarded. It reminded me, good God, of whom? I felt my head reel with a sudden fear, and the next moment a sense of chill faintness crept over me. You are not dancing well, monsieur, said the voice of the Marquesa. You are tired. For that matter, so am I. Take me to an anteroom and leave me. I will stay with you until your next partner arrives, I answered. You must leave me, she said in a peremptory tone. I wish it. Take me here. A little boudoir, draped in the palest green silk, stood invitingly open. We entered, 
and the Marchesa flung herself on a couch. After all, this headdress worries me, she said. I should like to take it off. Shall I assist you? I asked. Not now, she answered. Go into the open air. You look faint. We dance too fast. But all the same, it was divine, was it not? Marchesa, I answered. I have just lived through the most blissful moment of my life. Her laughter rang out clear. And did I hear aright? It seemed to mock me. She motioned me to go, and I went. A moment later, I was seated on a bench in the deep shade of a palm tree. Hello, Venice, is that you? called Pinheiro. Yes, I answered. I was dancing with the Marchesa, and we both felt faint. As I spoke, I took out my handkerchief and pressed it to my neck. Where is the Marchesa? asked Pinheiro. In one of the anterooms, I replied. She asked me to leave her. Again, I pressed the handkerchief to my neck. I will go and look for her, said Pinheiro. She promised me this dance. But whatever is the matter? Nothing much, I answered. Only one of the tiger's claws on that curious headdress gave me a sharp scratch, but it is not worth talking about. What possessed the girl to put on that infernal headdress? She must be out of her mind to do such a thing, cried Pinheiro. Now that I come to think over the matter, I would sooner dance with a cat. I won't trouble to find her. The scratch was a mere accident, I replied. Some thundering idiot cannoned into her. I dare say. Only one doesn't come to a ball to be torn to pieces by tiger's claws. I wish I could see the young lady, to tell her what I think of her. Well, and here she is, cried a silvery voice, and the Marchesa, unmasked and with a look of merriment on her face, stood before us. Oh, so you have taken it off, said Pinheiro. You will not be quite such a dangerous partner now, and I don't mind claiming your promise. This is our dance, is it not? You have not asked me for a dance this evening, monsieur. Indeed I did, he replied. See, here is your name on my program. But, hallo, you have made a complete change. Why is that? As he spoke, I saw the Marchesa was no longer in black Spanish lace, but was clothed from head to foot in some gossamery stuff of shimmering white. You have been very quick in changing your dress, I said. Once again, she laughed. You don't know the joke we have played upon you, she said. It is almost too good. I have a great mind to let you find it out for yourselves. No, no, said Pinheiro. You must tell. What joke do you allude to? Oh, I have had such fun, she exclaimed. I have been watching you both, and especially you, Monsieur Finesse, for the last half hour. It was not I who wore the headdress, but Mademoiselle de la Corte. I leapt to my feet, and a violent oath passed my lips. Pinheiro stood silent. May I ask the reason of this joke? he asked presently. You are not really angry, cried the girl. It was only fun. Francesca was at Madrid, and I mentioned to her that you were both going to the ball, and said that I intended to wear the headdress she so much admired, and that you, Monsieur Finesse, knew that I was going to. Then she wrote to me, asking me to let her take my place, and begged me not to say a word to anyone. I am so sorry that the claw scratched you, Monsieur Finesse. It is not serious, is it? Time will prove, said Pinheiro. His face was deadly white. You don't know what mischief you, in all innocence, have done, Marquesa. But now, don't keep us. If anything can save my friend, there is not an instant to lose. As Pinheiro spoke, he put his arm round my waist and raised me from the seat into which I had sunk. Come at once and quietly, he said. We will get back to Lisbon without a moment's delay. Without doubt, you have been poisoned. But there may be hope if we take the matter in time. While he was whispering to me, he was dragging me, for I was now incapable of walking, 
in the direction of the house. The Marchesa, startled and alarmed, walked by our side. I wish you would explain, she said. You have made me so terribly unhappy. What a what is wrong? Find the headdress, Marchesa, said Pinheiro, and if possible, and if you have the nerve, detain Mademoiselle Delacourt. Finesse, I will leave you for an instant on this seat close to the house while I fetch the carriage and give instructions to the police to watch everyone who leaves the castle. A sudden shiver of intense cold passed over me. Pinheiro disappeared round the corner of the brilliantly lighted house, and the young Marchesa seated herself by my side. I am so sorry and so terrified, she whispered. What, oh, what can be wrong? Pinheiro will tell you tomorrow, I answered in a whisper. But do not blame yourself, please. It was my own fault for not being more careful. Just then, Pinheiro appeared. The carriage is waiting, he said. I will call early tomorrow and explain everything to your mother, Marquesa. Now, Finesse. I was helped into the carriage, and soon afterwards, Pinheiro and I arrived at my hotel in Lisbon. The doctor had been summoned. He examined my wound and told Pinheiro that I had, without doubt, been inoculated with some deadly microorganisms. Will it be fatal? I whispered. You are in danger, was his slow reply. But you look strong and must be healthy. There ought to be hope. You should have a good nurse, however, as your symptoms will require careful watching. I will sit up with Monsieur Finesse tonight, said Pinheiro. I got him into this trouble and have made up my mind to pull him through at any cost. Through the long hours of that night, Pinheiro never left my side. At short intervals he administered stimulant after stimulant, and by doing so kept the dread enemy death at bay. In the morning I was still alive, but through the days and week that followed my life hung in the balance. How I did recover in the end will always appear to me little short of a miracle. When I was well enough for Pinheiro to leave me, he went back to Almeida Castle and told Mademoiselle Delacourt's true story to the Duchess and the Marquesa. The distress of both was beyond description. The headdress was examined, and even now traces of the deadly poison in which the tiger claws had been dipped were found upon them. But alas, Mademoiselle herself was gone. From the moment I left her in the green anteroom, she had not been seen or heard of at Castle Almeida. End of The Tiger's Claw Part 2